doing the scripture reading this morning, and I just want to preface it by saying, don't be afraid. Um, it's, it's quite a few verses, but I'm not going to turn over every stone in, in, in these verses. And you have to remember it's a narrative, so it doesn't really take that long to summarize narrative. So just listen and just kind of meditate on these verses as I read them to you. Matthew 27, verses 27 through 66. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemme sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the current of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went to the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own noon tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there, 
opposite the tomb. At the beginning of the week on this day that we call Palm Sunday, Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem was met with much fanfare. The people cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. In so many words, they were claiming Jesus as king. David was their greatest king, and the Jewish people were anticipating that one of his descendants would arise, would establish his throne once for all. They were looking for a savior. And as I mentioned earlier, that's what the Hebrew word Hosanna actually means. It means, God, save us. By the end of the week, Jesus is now exiting the city with the title of king. But his coronation is not what anyone would have imagined. Looking at verses 27 through 31 here in Matthew 27. Matthew tells us that Jesus was dragged off to the praetorium. Um, seems that, that the praetorium was the fortress Antonia, which is right next to the temple precinct. And in the praetorium, a whole company of soldiers gathered around him. Now, the, the fortress would have contained around 600 soldiers. So we're talking about possibly up to 600 soldiers surrounding Jesus, at least 100 to 200 soldiers surrounding Jesus, just mocking him. Um, and these soldiers wouldn't have necessarily been um, people from Rome. Um, the, these posts were often filled by um, non-Jewish peoples from the area. Um, and, and these people had a special hatred towards the Jews, and so they were relishing this opportunity to mock someone who was claiming to be the king of the Jews. They stripped him down, gave him a robe, put a crown on his head, and uh, began to pretend that he was king. And, you know, a crown of thorns, that definitely hurts, but the whole idea behind it isn't even so much the pain, it's just that it looks like a very regal crown. It's got those points pointing outward and everything. The point was to make fun of him. And so they say, Hail, King of the Jews. And you picture them, they, they put a staff in his hand, just a piece of wood, really. And just, you can imagine them taking it, hitting him over the head, oh, yo, yo, you're the king, you're the king. Just making fun of him. After they had their fun with Jesus, mocking him, beating him up, the soldiers got him back in his clothes. and So we don't know if he actually kept the crown of thorns on his head or not, um, but traditionally we've always depicted him as such. But in any case, they got him back in his clothes and led him away to be crucified. We look at verses 32 through 37. Having Jesus carry his cross, but he's too weak to do so. You have to remember before he was mocked, he was he was scourged, and I, I shared the, what that whip would have looked like last week. It would have had pieces of bone, pieces of lead. It would have ripped Jesus up. So we would have been bleeding a lot. That loss of blood produces a whole lot of, a whole lot of weakness. And 
and um, he wouldn't have had to carry the whole thing. A lot of times we imagine him carrying the whole cross, but it would have been actually the, the, the horizontal beam. But even that was too much for him to carry. And so they draft someone who's just on, on the scene to carry it for him, this fellow um, Simon from Cyrene. Now, Cyrene is an area in North Africa, and um, it's suggested um, by commentators that this is probably a Jew from North Africa who has returned to Jerusalem, because remember, this is the Passover feast, and so very often Jews from afar would come back to Jerusalem, the holy city, for their feasts. Um, so they draft this guy who's just kind of a tourist and say, okay, now you're going you're gonna to carry the cross for Jesus. And, um, and the fact that Simon's name is recorded here suggests that um, him, and it's mentioned elsewhere, the names of his sons, that they became followers of Christ after all of this. But for now, Simon carries Jesus' cross. And, and where they're going is a place outside of the city. And as far as the Roman rationale for doing this is because you want to crucify people on the outside of the city to send a message, to tell people who are coming in and going out don't mess with us. Bow before Caesar. Don't create problems. Don't step out of line. But there's some further significance in all of this. And this is just God at work, aligning these details to just bring the fulfillment of all Scripture. So Jesus had already anticipated this. In Matthew 21, um, when he was talking about um, this master who had a vineyard, and he sent his son to, to go and collect what was due. And there he says, so they took him, the son, and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So this idea of being tossed out of the vineyard. Jesus is being taken out of Jerusalem. And we see elsewhere in the Old Testament that being brought outside of the camp was the place where you brought those who were to be punished. Numbers 15, 35, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must die, the whole assembly must stone him, outside of the camp. Being outside of the camp, outside of the city, was indicating that you were rejected. Now, there's another interesting thing here, though, too, as far as the sacrifices go. And this brings together both the book of Leviticus and Hebrews. I know I've recommended this before, and I, I continue to do so. Read those two books together. Leviticus 16.27, this is talking about the Day of Atonement sacrifice, sacrifices that are made for sins. Um, it says, it prescribes there in Leviticus 16.27, the bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, and intestines are to be burned up. And this is just a reminder that the main point of the atonement sacrifices was to procure the blood, which was to bring cleansing to, to the precincts of the tabernacle and, and then ultimately the, the temple. Everything else was to be burnt outside the camp. When we turn to Hebrews 11, 13, 11 through 12, we see the writer of Hebrews um, interpret the circumstances that befell Jesus in light of what is talked about in the Old Testament. It says, 
the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. So everything that's going on here is just very rich in its fulfillment of everything that has preceded it in the Old Testament, just showing how everything is Everything that's come before is a signpost toward Jesus. Now, the place that they're taking Jesus is this place called Golgotha, um, which in Hebrew means the place of the skull. Um, and in Latin, that is called Calvaria, which is why we call it Calvary. If you ever wonder, like, why do we talk about the place where the cross is called Calvary? That's because um, Calvary means skull. It's the place of the skull. When they get there, um, they offer Jesus a drink of wine. But it's got gall mixed in it, which is an herb, probably myrrh, and it didn't taste good. It tasted really yucky. And, um, and there's a little bit of um, dispute among commentators as to why Jesus refuses to drink it. Because on the one hand, like it tastes really gross. Why, why would you want to drink that? On the other hand, though, um, when you mix myrrh with this, this wine vinegar, it created a bit of a narcotic that would have eased some of the pain. And so it's suggested that perhaps he refused to take it because he wasn't trying to back away from what he was enduring. So he refuses that, and they put him up on the cross. Now, I think a lot of us, when we think about how crucifixion crucifixion kills someone, we often think, well, they're nailed through the hands and the feet. That's got to be really bad for you. But... Um, that's not actually the way in which crucifixion kills a person um, because they didn't always um, nail people. Very often they tied people to crosses. And the reason why that was sufficient is because the way that crucifixion actually kills someone is by asphyxiation. Because as you're hanging there, your lungs are kind of forced in the exhale position. And so in order to inhale, you've got to push up. Now imagine just keep having to do that over and over and over and over again. Eventually you're going to get worn out, especially when you've been scourged and everything. And once that happens, um, you get a high level of carbon dioxide in your system. And I'm not a medical doctor, but I've, I've read the studies on this. Basically what's suggested is that Jesus would have experienced some kind of heart attack, basically. It's just kind of striking, you think about it. I mean, we don't know for certain, but that seems to be the case based on some of the details that are included here, that the heart of Jesus Christ was literally broken for us. Now, before he dies, though, he's hanging up there, and the soldiers are just sitting around. And it's kind of a weird scene to kind of picture you, you know, we see police officers, you know, sitting around for, you know, road work. We've got lots of road work going on around here, and they just sit around. They have to be there. That's kind of what the Roman soldiers are here. They, they just got to be here and make sure this guy dies. Um, and so they try to entertain themselves a little bit. Um, they, uh, they, they take Jesus' clothes. They gamble for it. Um, and we'll see how that actually has some prophetic significance to that in Psalm 22. Um, and uh, as mentioned before, they, 
they did offer him that drink, and Luke suggests that it might have been to kind of mock him a, a little bit. Um, in Psalm 69, 21, that's actually um, prophesied. It says, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for, for my thirst. Um, the other thing that they did um, at the direction of Pilate was to put this sign over Jesus, um, which says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And they, they wrote it in three languages, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. So everybody going by can know why Jesus was being crucified. And uh, some of the high priests, um, it says in the Gospel of John that some of the high priests were really annoyed by this. And they came to Pilate and said, no, you should just say that he claimed to be the king, not that he actually is the king. And Pilate like, basically just says, I've written what I've written. Deal with it. Um, and so you can see there, Pilate is, um, is probably making a little bit of fun of the people. Um, that, oh, here's your king. I've crucified him. And... Uh, but Jesus, as he's hanging there, he, he is not alone. Um, Barabbas has been released, um, but the Romans had other criminals to execute besides him. And in verse 38, we see that two rebels are crucified with Jesus on his right and his left. And again, this is another detail that just plays to fulfilling prophecy in Isaiah 53, 12. Um, Isaiah, the prophet, prophesies, saying, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life until death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So, he was numbered with the transgressors, these criminals. He's among the number. These three. And as he's hanging there with these criminals, people are, are mocking Jesus. Just your common folk are mocking him. The chief priests and elders are mocking him. Even the rebels, these criminals next to him, are mocking him. And, um, and one of them does eventually have a turn of heart. We don't see that here in Matthew. But they're mocking him as they're hanging there with him, which is pretty twisted. Um, and they say things like this. They say, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And as we hear these mocking voices, what we're actually hearing is an echo of the voice of Satan in Matthew 4, as Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness experiencing those temptations. Because as they're mocking Jesus, they are actually tempting Jesus. Because we do know that he has power, even if they're doubting him. And what Satan says in Matthew 4, he says, if you are the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. Jump off from the top of the temple mount. And, and, and so we're hearing that echo here in, in these mocking voices. Terrible things that they're saying to him. I would say sadly familiar things. Um, I'm not going to get into the details of, of what have occur, of, has occurred this week because of our children here, and I don't want them to live in fear. But we're all familiar as adults, the things that occurred down in Nashville this week. 
and there's just been some really terrible things that have been said. And there was one prominent online personality that I saw online uh, say this, he eventually took it down uh, from a lot of pressure, but I've changed the things in brackets, if they can put it up there, um, from what he, he said, um, just for the sake of the kids, but he basically said this, it's very surprising that this terrible thing would happen to Christians, given that lack of prayers often blamed for these horrible events. Is it possible they weren't praying enough or correctly, despite being Christians? And when I hear that, when I hear someone say that, I hear that voice that mocked Christ. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. I am the Son of God. And we hear that because in Jesus Christ, we are the children of God. We are his sons and daughters. And yet, these terrible things happen. And the thing is, we don't need the heartless mockery of others for questions to emerge in our own minds. And, um, and as I was thinking about this, uh, a song actually uh, came to mind. And uh, I'm just going to give them a head, heads up in the back. You're gonna, I'm going to read the lyrics, and you just got to press for each line to come up here. Um, that just kind of, sh- I think, strikes to the heart of, of this experience that so much of us feel when, when these questions come to mind. This is a song by Matt Marr. It goes like this. He says, Lost, everything is lost, and everything I've loved before is gone. Alone, like the coming of the frost, and a cold winter's chill in my stony heart. And where were you when all that I've hoped for, where were you when all that I've dreamed came crashing down in shambles around me. You were on the cross. This is what we must remember as we go through times of suffering. Why does the Christian keep the faith when it seems like they're left to suffer? It's because our, the author and perfecter of our faith has gone before us on the cross. God has entered into our suffering. Again, as I mentioned before, it's important to remember here that Jesus did have the power to come off the cross. They didn't take his life from him. He gave it up freely, as he says in John 10, 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down for my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. So moving on to verses 45 through 50. We continue to see that without question, Christ has brought our curse upon Himself. He cries, Eli, Eli, lemesebectani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what Jesus is doing here is quoting Psalm 22. We're going to have it up here on the screen. 
I encourage you to turn there and circle that passage if, you, if, you're, if you're one who writes in your Bible. Circle it because it's one of the most significant psalms when it comes to seeing a psalm anticipating the coming of Christ. This is, we're talking about a psalm that was written like 800, 900 years before. Psalm 22. And just be attentive to the details here as I read it. And just hear how this just matches up so much with what Christ is going through. This is a psalm come to life. It says in Psalm 22, For the director of music to the tune of the doe of the morning, a psalm of David, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. It's you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax, has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot sheared, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They'll proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He has done it. Christ has entered into our condition of God's forsakenness, which is this experience of of being separated from God. The experience of being cast out of the garden and living 
in the blood, sweat, and tears, the thorns of this world. He crossed that distance. He went to the dark side of the moon. He came under the black curse of human sin so that we could be saved. So that we could all come out on the other side and declare He has done it. Because you see, so often we, we get so internally focused on all the bad things that are going on, on in my life. Well, you think you've had it bad. Jesus has been in our shoes and He's seen much, much worse. Especially when you think He's God the Son. And yet He humbled Himself. He took Himself out of that perfect presence to be among us and to suffer and die. Now as Christ cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We might be tempted to think, well, maybe God actually has forsaken him. But we see here at the end here that God does not forsake this one who cries out to help, even as he experiences forsakenness. It's a tension. It's a kind of a sort of paradox. He undergoes the experience of forsakenness, but God does not actually abandon him. This lines up with everything that Jesus says about his relationship with the Father. Remember when Jesus told his disciples that they'd be scattered. In John 19, 16, verse 32, he says, You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. The Father is always with Christ. And he hears him. And we look at this verse in Psalm 22, verse 24. This is the kind of like the turning point for everything here. It says, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Now, I take this to be both th- two things. One, Jesus' prayer in the garden, and also what's going on here at the cross. And the writer of Hebrews takes this up in Hebrews 5.7. He says, During the day of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And this is why Christ endures what he endures. This is why he does not despair. Because he trusts in God. That's what we see in Psalm 22. The trust of the psalmist in God. Prefiguring the trust of Christ in the Father. And that's the sort of trust that we can have because Christ has gone before us. Because If there is no such deliverance, if we endure the sorts of tragedies that befall Nashville and elsewhere across the pages of history and into the future, if we endure all those things and there is no salvation that is promised, then we're just a bunch of fools. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 and 30 through 32. He says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ... As though, like, oh, you know, make me an upstanding citizen, all that kind of stuff. We are of all people most to be pitied. And then he goes on and refers to his own experience. He says, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. See, 
Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection are inextricably linked. If you do not have the resurrection, and we'll get into that next week, but if you don't have the resurrection, it's like, why, why endure all this? It does seem like God is, has abandoned you if, you if you don't have resurrection awaiting. But this is the promise that belongs to all of us, and this is what we see. We see the faith of Christ in this promise as he's in the midst of this terrible suffering, the worst place imaginable, the place no one would want to be. Because of what comes after the cross, we are no fools to have faith. Now, those who are surrounding Jesus as he's, as he's making this cry, they don't understand exactly what he's saying. We can understand if the speech of Christ here probably isn't perfectly clear. And they think that he, as he's crying out a lie, which means God, they think that he's calling out for Elijah. And, um, and Elijah has um, kind of this apocalyptic uh, role to play. Um, in the coming of the kingdom of God. And so it kind of makes sense. Maybe he's calling on Elijah to come deliver him. And so they said, oh, let's get him this wine vinegar. Um, and the wine vinegar wasn't actually bitter. It was something that was kind of like an ancient form of sports drink. I'm not saying it would have tasted great, but it was supposed to kind of help you. Um, so they're like, oh, let's go get him that. And, and the others are like, leave him alone. He's, let's, just, let's just see what he, what's going to happen here. And... Um, Instead of Jesus being delivered by Elijah, um, he dies. Verse 50 says, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He gave up his life. And when that happens, some crazy things happen. Now, some crazy things had already begun to happen because, so this is, began at like noontime, went to three, and during that whole time, the land, darkness had come over the land. And we're still not exactly sure what happened because we understand that God can use natural phenomenon to produce these things. Um, it wasn't an eclipse. It couldn't have been an eclipse as far as I understand, but darkness had fallen over the land. And now, after all of that, which is pretty spooky, <laughs> this guy is calling out to God. It says an earthquake shook the land. And this earthquake had two results. The first is that it tore the curtain in the temple in two. And the second result is that it broke open the tombs in the area. Well, let's look at the first thing, the tearing of the curtain. Now, the, the significance of this is that this would have been the curtain that was separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Now, the Holy of Holies was that area designated by God, first in the tabernacle and then manifested in the permanent structure of the temple where it was kind of the footstool for God. Not that God was contained in the Holy of Holies, but this is where God came to meet his people. And the reason why God had made this whole arrangement is because he needed the people to understand that he is a holy God and they are a sinful people, and they need to approach him very carefully. You see, you couldn't just stroll into the, to the Holy of Holies. It's not like you just show up and have a tour of the Holy of Holies. The high priest went in there once a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the people's sins, and then he came back out, thankful that he was not struck dead. God made all these arrangements because 
as human beings, we're kind of thick-headed. You know, to the, to the people of Israel, he could have said, you know, I have called you to be moral people, and your immorality does not befit the calling I've placed on your life, and you dwelling with me, and all that. He could have just told them that. Rather than just telling them that, he drove the home, point home and showed them that, and said, I'm going to build this tab. I'm going to have you build this tabernacle. It's going to be at the center of your camp. Reminding you, I'm supposed to be at the center of your life. And you can't just come in because you're a sinful people. That's the real problem with sin. It separates us from God. It's an us problem. We're we're dirty, we're unclean. And we're just like these machines that just produce more more filth. You know, like think of factories that put up really bad toxins up in the air. That's us. We're sin factories. And we need to be purified and made clean if we're going to live with God. And that's the fundamental problem throughout Scripture. How is it possible that God can dwell with man? How can we be with God? Because that's the goal. That's the outcome that God always wanted. He didn't want it to be like something where he's a million miles away and just kind of like tinkering with things. No, God wanted to make his home with us. But we didn't want to be at home with him. We wanted our own kingdom. And so our sin separated us from him. But now this is changing in Christ. The curtain is torn in two so that the way is opened to God. And again, the writer of Hebrews here, in Hebrews 10, 19-22, speaking of Christ as he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, he's It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have this confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Before... People are told to stay out. That's what the story yesterday of the egg hunt was. People stay out. You can't come in because you're sinful people. Now the way is opened up and we're invited to draw near to God through Jesus Christ. And what this is revealing to us is the significance of Jesus' death. That he is the cleansing ransom that restores us. This is all prefigured in the sacrifices. All the atonement sacrifices that were offered were meant to function as gifts to God that restore, that make amends. You think, like, if I go out and slam one of your cars with a sledgehammer, you'd want me to fix that, right? And I'd give you money to fix it. I wouldn't just give you money to, so you have money, but money so that it would be fixed. And that's the idea with these sacrifices, is that they were given to fix something. And, of course, none of the animal sacrifices could fix anything. But that's what's different about Jesus. He's the gift that actually can fix things. And Jesus said this explicitly about himself, that he would be this ransom. Matthew 20, 28, says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then you go to the the writer of Hebrews, and he says this of Christ. He says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins 
committed under the first covenant. And so Jesus, as a ransom, is dealing with all the past things that we've done in our lives. You can think about your life and you can think, there's a lot of things that I regret. And you try to put those things out of mind and feel kind of good about yourself. Maybe you compare yourself to others. But when you compare yourself against Jesus, and when you fully understand who God is and His holiness, you feel like, I am not worthy. That's how we should all feel. We're not wor- we are not worthy. Now the problem is, is that some of us feel, I'm not worthy, and so I won't come to church. I know people sadly like that. They won't come to the church because they feel like, I'm not worthy. I can't be here. I've done too many bad things. But this is what Christ has come to set right. To cover all of our sins, all of our mistakes, cover up our past, and make it right through the gift of Himself. But He's done more than this as well. Not just dealing with our past, but dealing with us, with our hearts, so that we are no longer these factories of sin. Paul speaks of it as, like this in Romans 6, 6-11, speaking about the significance of Christ's death. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus died so that we'd be freed from sin, so that we could enter into a new life, which begins today. And it will ultimately be fully played out as we gain the new bodily life, which is promised. And that's the second part here of the events that follow Jesus' death that point to its significance. The tomb, the rocks are broken open, the tombs are broken open. And what this is pointing to is the fact that Jesus has broken the power of death. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 15, the writer says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's the other thing that Jesus has, has come to deal with. Not just our guilt, not just the condition of our lives today, but to make it so that we no longer need to live afraid of dying. I want to tell you something. We live in a world that is very afraid of dying. Very afraid. We're so afraid that we just distract ourselves. We don't think of death. You know, our ancestors, you know what they used to do? When someone died, they bring them right into their parlor. Their front parlor have the body laid out and stuff. And it's like, yeah, grandpa's dead, and we're just standing here, you know, like. And now we just we try to put that all away. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about the fact that I'm gonna die. And so we die it. And we hope, oh, technology might extend our, our life maybe 20 or 30 years, or maybe even longer than that. Because we're so afraid of death. Christian doesn't need to stuff death away. 
The Christian does not have to pin their hopes on technological innovations because Christ has broken the power of death. And we know that because He is raised from the dead. And that we will be raised from the dead with Him. Now, our future resurrection, Matthew says, is basically prefigured here because as Christ was rose from the dead, it says that other holy people, some of, some of God's people in this area, were raised to the de- from the dead after Jesus' resurrection. It's a little confusing the way he describes the, how things played out. It's like the tombs broke out open and then they raised from the dead. The point is, is that they weren't alive before Jesus. They were alive after Jesus rose from the dead. And what this is pointing to is our hope for us. Now, it's, it's an interesting episode because it only appears in Matthew's Gospel. And, you know, it's qu- quite the occurrence that these other people rose from the dead. And so some commentators say, we think this is symbolic. And, and these are commentators that I count as brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not liberals or, you know, people denying that Jesus is God, all that. You know, real brothers, and, brothers in Christ. Um, but everything that I read here tells me that this is something that actually happened. Because it's included with the earthquake, it's included with everything else that's happened. Um, And if you're wondering, well, what happened to these people? I think it's safe to surmise that they ascended to heaven. Um, They're not not walking around the world world today. I think they've ascended to heaven. Now again, this is not a central matter of the faith. And unfortunately, I think as readers of of Scripture, sometimes we can focus on these kind of like peripheral details and we get so fixated on them. But these things are not the cornerstone of our faith. Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. And we have more than good enough reason to believe that he is who he says he is because he is raised. And we'll get into that next week a bit more. But as the guards are standing here seeing all this happen, they're convinced. And they didn't even, it's not even saying here that they saw bodies raised from the dead. They just see everything else. The sky, the earthquake, all this. And so... Matthew says the centurion, those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that happened. They were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Now, I think the beautiful thing here is that their testimony is really pointing to what Jesus came to do, which was to bring salvation to the world. Jesus didn't just come for the Jewish people. He came to bring salvation to all the world. And Jesus has already been talking about this in his ministry. In Matthew 8, 11 through 12, we, we hear him um, talking, commenting on the faith of the centurion uh, who said, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is so impressed, he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place, places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The plan has always been to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, the other thing that's interesting here is we, we see it mentioned that the women are, are on the scene. And they're watching kind of from afar. And it kind of prompts the question, well, where's, where's the men? Now, we know in John 19, um, the Apostle John was there. Um, but it's just interesting, this detail, because... 
If this whole story was concocted by the disciples, why would the disciples exclude themselves from being present at the cross? You would think like they'd be like, oh yes, we were all there, and we were all kneeling and praying, and you know, all this. No, they were nowhere to be found. The women were there. And it's just a reminder to me, I'm so thankful for our sisters in Christ here, because we need you, and we need the men of our church too. We need them to stand up. And that's, and that's the thing, is we see this beautiful complementarity, I think, between the men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see how their faith was kind of really leading the way here for everything that was to follow. Now we do see a man come on the scene here who, is, who does demonstrate his loyalty to Jesus in verses 57 through 61. This guy, um, Joseph of Arimathea. Now Joseph was a rich man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, so a Pharisee. But he had become a disciple of Jesus. And he cares so much about Jesus that he's so bold to actually go to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body. And Pilate gives it to him. He gives him Jesus' body. And the reason why this is kind of significant is because usually what they did with the bodies of those crucified is they just tossed them in an unmarked grave. Like, these guys don't really matter. That's not what happened to Jesus. Jesus. Instead, Joseph of Arimathea takes him, wraps him in cloths of linen, and puts him in his own tomb. A tomb that had never been used before. And again, this is just fulfilling prophecy. In Isaiah 53.9, it says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And the idea here is, is you take this body, you wrap it in linen, and you lay it in the tomb, and it's going to stay there until the body basically completely decays and there's just bones left. And then what they would do is they take the bones and then put it in a little box called an ossuary. Um, so this tomb was really a tool. It was a tomb to let bodies decay. And, and that was the plan for Jesus. They were figuring that's what was going to happen. And so Joseph is, doing, is there caring for Jesus' body. In the Gospel of John, it says Nicodemus, um, who was also a Pharisee, was there as well caring for Jesus' body. And we see Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting nearby. Again, just continuing to be faithful to Christ. None of them imagined that things would end this way. Their dream that Jesus would sit on a throne was broken by the nightmare of him hanging dead on a cross. Everything seemed lost. All the mocking voices pierced their souls. Where was God in all this? Why had he forsaken Jesus? Why had he taken their master and friend? It was incomprehensible. We are familiar with their confusion. The why that seems to have no answer. That feeling that God has abandoned us. It's difficult to find any light in the valley. But when we look at Jesus today, knowing the whole story, we can say with the psalmist, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. He's with us, brothers and sisters. 
Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. As the prophet Isaiah foretold, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Why? Because he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. All the suffering in this world is because of us. It's because we have rebelled against God. We have forsaken Him. And we feel the pain of our separation even today. But we now know that God has not forsaken us. Because God was on the cross. God the Son took on the responsibility of our crimes. He took up our debt and brought peace between us and God. He offered Himself as the matchless, perfect gift none of us could offer. And through His obedient death, He destroyed sin's power. He is victorious where all of us fail. And by His resurrection, which we will celebrate, we will see that He died to kill death. He's opened up the way for us to come to God. The curtain has been torn. And so if you believe in Jesus, you can now come to God. You can leave your sin behind and you can go to God through Jesus Christ. This changes everything. It even changes the face of the suffering we see in Nashville. It changes the face of the suffering that surrounds you in your own life as you follow Christ. And I can do nothing better than to leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul as he tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7-11 through 11 and 17-18. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so, this is, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted but not abandoned. We are struck down but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Dear Father, We confess this morning that Jesus Christ is King. And that He has become King by going to the cross. He becomes King by going to the cross, Father, because He is the one who is perfectly obedient. He is the one who offered up the perfect gift to cover our sins. He's the one 
who's broken death's power. And so he is unlike any of us, Father, in that regard. And has the right to be king. And is sufficient to be our Savior. And yet also, Father, as we see Christ on the cross, we see how he is very much like us. And that he took on our curse. He entered into our suffering. And so, Father, this morning we have two prayers that we both come to Christ and receive the full forgiveness and cleansing that is is provided by His death. And that as we believe in Him and trust in the way that You've opened up through Him, Father, that You would give us faith as we endure our own suffering here in this world. That your faithfulness would overshadow the mocking voices that we hear, whether it's outside or in our own heads, Father, that ask, where's your God? Because we know that you are with us, Father. We know that your son went to the cross. And we know that he is victorious. And that in him we too shall overcome. We give you praise in the name of Jesus Christ our Savior and King. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.